Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Marlene Kreitz. Marlene is an environmental artist and poet who lives in Portugal Cove. Underlying all her work is an interest in place, not just as a geographical location, but as a process that involves memory, multiple narratives, ecology, and language. Her work has been presented in over 350 exhibitions and screenings, both across Canada and internationally, and is in many public collections, including the National Gallery of Canada. Marlene, welcome to the show. Hi, Jay. Hi, Dale. I'm delighted that you're here. I was just saying, as you came in, we haven't we haven't had a chat in a long time, and it's always I always love having a chat with you. So this is, this is nice. So welcome <laughs> yeah, to the show. Yeah, nice for me. Um, maybe just to start off with, uh, we'll get a. I want to give people a little bit of a. Uh, your history, how how you developed as an artist, and 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 where your art kind of comes from. I know that's a big, maybe that's a big place to start. <laughs> well, there wasn't anything else I ever wanted to do. Yeah. Even when I was a child, I wanted to be an artist, and I have no idea where that idea came from. I'd never met an artist. I grew up in the suburbs of Montreal. I'd never been to an art gallery. Somehow. I had this idea. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, so what? What path did you pursue to to get there? Well, I I took every art class that I could in high school, and um, I applied then to study visual arts. I went to Queen's University, and um, as soon as I finished the bachelor's level, I just I didn't even want to go on to do the masters. I just wanted to start. So I I started. Yeah. in the mid-70s, trying to be an artist. And how did you end up in Newfoundland? Well, that's because my family history on my mother's side is all here in Newfoundland. My grandparents were born in Lewisport. My great-grandparents were from Fogo Island, Jobat's Arm. And they're in, actually, the, the history is in Fogo Island for many generations, you know, before it goes back to Wessex, you know, probably Dorset. They came from Dorset over to Fogo Island. So I actually grew up not knowing anything about my family history in Newfoundland. Mm. We never came here to visit when I was a child. There was one or two Newfoundland relatives who visited us. But to me, Newfoundland was this very far off, complete unknown. So Actually, as an adult, when I was in my 30s, I came here on my own to meet my relatives. And I just, I knew the names of a few of them. So I just go knock on the door and introduce myself. And I, I, I would either say I'm George Late's granddaughter or I'm Tamer Freak's great granddaughter, according to whatever the relationship was. And then they would tell me about more relatives because at that point, then they were spread out around the island quite a bit. Um, well, also Fogo Island, there were still some there. So um, I discovered that Newfoundland really meant a lot to me, a yeah. lot more to me, actually, than where I was living at the time, which was Ottawa. I went to Ottawa after I, I left uh, Queen's University. And um, so at the time, I kind of went against the flow. Back in the mid-80s, people were leaving Newfoundland, and I decided to move here. And it's one of the best things I ever did. <laughs> well, Newfoundland is better for having you here, I think. Well, thank you. <laughs> no, it's, it's wonderful. And, and uh, I'm curious then about when, when did you start to recognize that place was important in your work? Uh, well, as I mentioned, I, I grew up in the suburbs and it was such a non-place. I mean, in school, I didn't learn anything whatsoever about the ground that I was standing on. 
like zero. Hmm. It seemed to me that history was something that happened somewhere else. It was always somewhere else. There was no history about where I lived. And that was, I think, from the times. I mean, it was right after the Second World War. People were trying to start a whole new world order. They were trying to start afresh. There was a new prosperity. You know, I can understand it. But still, I had a curiosity that I knew there was things that had happened that were not visible and not spoken of. And um, it's still the main curiosity to me. Yeah. 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 I know your work with uh, memory mapping starts to get at some of that stuff with people. Mm -hmm. And for for those who aren't familiar with the work that you do around memory mapping, can you you explain that, what that that means? Yeah. Well, um, when I was still in Ottawa... I started, uh, I was teaching at the University of Ottawa in the visual arts department, and I taught very, quite a few different uh, genres or mediums. I taught sculpture, I taught photography, photo theory, I taught drawing, um, and it didn't matter which course I was teaching, I would always ask the students to draw a map of Ottawa. And it was amazing to me. You'd ask 30 people to draw a map of the exact same place and they would all be completely different. These are just pencil on paper, completely subjective maps. How do people come to know a place? And what do they know that's in that place? And what do they not know? And why? Anyway, it seemed to me that the students never really appreciated these drawings as much as I did. And I thought, you know what, I'm kind of wasting this good idea on these students, so I'm going to do this (laughs) myself. And so starting in 1986, I deliberately used uh, these, what I call call the memory maps. That was the term that I came up with myself back in the 80s because geographers call them cognitive maps. But to me, it wasn't so much about knowledge. It was more about experience and subjective memory. So I coined the term memory maps. And so starting in, like I said, 1986, I started formally using them in my work. And I would meet people. I would ask them to draw a map for me. And I was always in a place where I was a visitor. And it's a very common thing to do for someone if they're a visitor and they don't know the area. To ask someone to, you know, sometimes these maps end up on the back of envelopes or paper napkins or whatever. And it's really interesting to me what people choose from their everyday environment to guide other people. What are their landmarks that they put on their maps? So that's how it started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the projects that I, I've heard you speak about uh, in, in terms of your work with memory maps is, is work that you had done on, on the coast of Labrador. Yes. Um, which seems very fascinating. So how did how did that project evolve? How, where, where did you get the idea to start doing some work in Labrador? Well, because I was living in Newfoundland and, and I didn't know anything about Labrador and it was part of the province I was living in, I decided to go there in 1988. And at the time, um, and since 1981, there had been a, low, a lot of low-level jet bomber flight training taking place in Labrador. And I, of course, had heard a lot about the protests uh, by um, the First Nations over this. The, the, the flights were, you know, really disrupting the caribou. And um, I thought, well, the reason Labrador is being used for this low-level 
flight training is because it's kind of seen as a no man's land, as a sort of an empty landscape, an empty wilderness where there is nobody. But I knew otherwise. And so I thought, well, I think I'm going to go to Labrador and I'm going to try to um, show that Labrador is not a no man's land. It actually has this long history. People know this landscape. It's their homeland. And I like to say that my work is political, but it's not placard waving. So the low-level flight training doesn't ever appear in that work. What you see is I took portraits, photographs of each person I met. They drew a map for me. There's some text, which is part of the story, what they told me as they were drawing the map. And then I go to the place that they've drawn the map of. And in most cases, I also collect some kind of natural found object from the place, and it would be something that they've mentioned in the course of describing it. So if they mentioned the rocks, I would get a rock. Um, so I went to Nain. I went to the three most northern communities at that time, Nain, Davis Inlet, and Hopedale. And I made a special effort to talk to both Inuit and Inu, as well as settlers, um, who now call themselves Métis. But at the time, they were still calling themselves settlers in 1988. And so that series then led to me doing a similar kind of project with my own relatives here in Newfoundland about the three bits of landscape where my grandmother, my grandfather, and my great-grandmother were born. So I interviewed relatives who were all born on that same piece of land. And so in each case, I have five or six people drawing a map of the exact same little property and everybody's is completely different, mm. you know, because everybody, re- everybody has a different experience of a place, and so they have completely different things that they remember. I remember you telling me at one point, or telling, in a, uh, telling an audience at a presentation about a, a specific example in Labrador where you had interviewed uh, a husband and wife and got them to draw maps yes. of the same place, and, and the scope of their maps was very different. Uh-huh. Well, I think that's probably Rosie Webb and Chesley Webb. And I met them in Nain. They were living in Nain. I mean, that's the other interesting thing about that series that I did in 1988. I went specifically talked to elderlers, elderly people, and they were the last generation of Labradorians who had lived on the coast, one or two families in each bay, before they moved into the community. So Rosie and Chesley Webb lived in a bay north of Nain called Webb's Bay, because they were the only family living there. And when I give everyone a piece of paper to draw me a map, I don't give any directions. I just say, can you please draw a map for me of this place you're telling me about? So Rosie's map, um, well, to put this in context, she told me she had 15 children. Now, they're living just this family in this bay, no running water, no electricity, 15 children. I mean, it's unimaginable to me. It really is completely unimaginable. So her, the territory that she drew on her map, and I, and I used just eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper, is just the ground right around the house and a little smokehouse, which is a, um, a big triangular shape in the middle of her map because it was made out of a wooden boat cut in half and turned on end. (laughs) And that's where they used to smoke char. And of course, they're not smoking char to make some kind of delicacy. This is like for food preservation, just to survive, to keep the food from spoiling. 
So that's what's on Rosie's map. And then I talked to her husband, Chesley Webb, and I asked him to draw a map for me. And on the same size piece of paper, he drew the whole of Webb's Bay, I don't know how many hundred of square kilometers, and he marked off where he would set his traps, where he went hunting, where he went fishing. And so it made such a graphic representation of their two lives just on this piece of paper drawing a map. Rosie, 15 children, she couldn't go off walking across the land or anywhere for that matter. She was there with her territory being right around the house. Chesley, meanwhile, to support the family, was off hunting and fishing and trapping, and his territory was the whole of Webb's Bay. And I originally went to Labrador, in fact, to see if there was a difference between the way the Inuit, the Innu, and the settlers remembered and perceived the landscape because of an experience I had had on Baffin Island in 1985, which I could tell you about if we have time. But anyway, it turned out in Labrador... The difference was not between those three groups. It was definitely between the men and the women. And time and time again, <coughs> and time and time again, it was this same representation of the territories was very much to do with how people were living in that landscape and what they were doing and, and, and how they were... Um, how they were living, the size of their territory. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you see similar things when you were doing the work uh, on the island, when you were working on in Newfoundland? With my relatives, pretty much, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah, pretty how's, much. How so? Well, again, you know, like um, in the series where my grandmother was born, uh, someone drew the whole of Lewisport Harbor when I asked them to draw a map of the place where they were born. It was the whole bay, whole Lewisport Bay. And then another person, was, so that was a man, and then a woman, a cousin of mine, she literally just drew the front garden gate and then out to the sidewalk where the house she was born in, which was my great-grandparents' house. That was... That was her world. All, that was always on her map, Yeah. Yeah. So what's the I, I have to I have to know now. You teased it. What's the oh. what's the Baffin Island uh, Oh, the Baffin story? Island story. Well, I went to Baffin Island in 1985 and um I was I went right up to Pond Inlet. I went right up to these little communities and uh at one point I didn't want to just stay in the community. I wanted to walk outside the community. And so I kind of asked someone, you know, I meet various people and so on. I mean, one of the things I love doing is talking to strangers. And I think I've actually got some of my best material talking to strangers. I really, I really have. So I asked someone, where, where would you suggest I go for a walk? Um, And this person I was speaking to was a Euro-Canadian. Right. And he said, well, here, I'll draw a map for you. And this is where it would be a good place for you to walk, you know, across the tundra. And there's not a lot of landmarks on the tundra, so, you know, you kind of need a bit of guidance here. And he said, well, you know, before you do go on this walk, I really advise you to go talk to Paul Lidlout, who was an Inuit man, an Inuk, and see what he thinks. So I found him. 
And he drew a map for me of the exact, exact same area of tundra as the first one. And if I showed you those two maps today, you would immediately guess which person had drawn which map. The map by the Euro-Canadian was covered with writing and labeling and um, lines that were sort of direction lines. And the map by the Inuit man, he was trying on this two-dimensional service to kind of draw the contours of the land. And you could see the lines trying to shape the landscape. And there was no words written on it. Quite an interesting comparison. In the end... The upshot of all this is I didn't actually use either of the maps to go for a walk because Paul Lillout said, you mustn't go unless you take a gun because there's a chance, there's a risk of polar bears. Right. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to shoot a polar bear. No way. <laughs> so so what is the reaction um, of people when you ask when you ask them, will you draw me a map? You know what? Nobody says no. Yeah. This is what's so interesting. If I asked them to draw a house or a tree, they would say, oh, no, I can't draw. But it's amazing how it is such an everyday, well, maybe not everyday, but it's a common thing that we do for a visitor is draw a map for them so they can find their way. And so nobody said no, they wouldn't draw a map for me. Neither, none of my relatives that I interviewed, and they were, I was introducing myself to many of them for the first time so I was a stranger and none of the people in Labrador nobody said no I won't draw a map mm-hmm. but I bet everyone would have said no I can't draw a tree yeah, <laughs> yeah. so what, what does that mean to you as an artist is there something about uh are, are people intimidated by artistic process we, we are, are we taught not to not to draw hmm well probably you've got it there I yeah. guess yeah, or we draw as children. Everybody draws as children, but then somehow we do get more inhibited. But it's interesting, not when it comes to maps. I mean, I find that so fascinating. Yeah. And and also, I want to explain about these maps. This is a key thing that's important. If I asked you to draw a map of Canada, even if you've dr- driven or visited all over Canada... What you actually would be remembering and drawing is a picture of a map of Canada. You'd be trying to remember those shapes of what you've seen on a printed map. These memory maps do not come from book learning. They do not come from seeing printed versions of the landscape. They come from people remembering the place and drawing it from their own on-the-ground experience. That's what's so different about these maps compared to printed maps yeah i think like when when even when you said that you know a map of a map of canada i immediately get that you know that grade four picture with all the all the provinces and different other shapes i I know i can draw saskatchewan and (laughs) and then the rest of it is a bit a bit of a jumble right yeah it's 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 fascinating how we do that like i i know i have a I, i have a mental map of the neighborhood that i i live in but i don't think i've ever really looked at a printed map of it maybe i don't i don't know no, so if you were drawing it, what you'd be remembering, you'd be kind of mentally putting yourself back in the place and picturing, if I go here, well, then there's mm. that. If I go, you know, it's from your experience and knowledge of the place. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other projects I wanted to, to have a chat with you about was um, a project that uh, you had done where you, you encouraged people to give places uh, award ribbons. Oh, oh yeah. So how, I wh- love that project. <laughs> so <laughs> where, where did this project take place or how did it come about? Well, I've done it twice now um 
the first time, no, I've done it three times actually. The very first time was uh, I went to Lawn under the Art Smarts program through the Newfoundland Labrador Arts Council to do a project with the students in Lawn about Lawn. And I don't know how I got this idea, but I had this idea. I'm going to ask the students to choose places in Lawn that they want to give an award to. And so I brought the materials for them to each make, well, each child chose two places actually. They they each made two ribbons, and I brought fabric paints and so on. So they, they had to think ahead of time, where were they going to give the award? What were they going to give the award to in lawn? And then they, they pa- painted with fabric paints something appropriate on, on each ribbon. So we had all these ribbons. And then the school bus driver, I mean, you can only do this in a small place. <laughs> You'd never be able to do this anywhere else. The school bus driver agreed to drive us around lawn and we charted out sort of a logical route um, and we'd stop at each place and then each child and, and I had fasteners and stuff and we'd attach the award ribbon we attached ribbons to the goal post at the soccer field because you know lawn soccer's a big thing yeah, there absolutely. we attached one to the only little shop in town we attached one to the takeout it said uh, best food ever it's the only little <laughs> only little restaurant in town. Um, we went all over lawn, but where we spent the most amount of time, and I did not predict this ever, was in the cemetery. I did not grow up with any of my relatives buried just up on the hill from where I live. And I would say at least half the children, they wanted to give one of their award ribbons to a grandparent's or aunt or uncle's grave in the cemetery it was so interesting to me and so touching and the messages on these award ribbons were just break your heart to read them you know um so we spent a lot of time in the cemetery going from one grave to another and each child attaching their ribbon to one of their relatives graves it was really special so you said you did it in lawn and then you did it in one other place and then um yeah two other places i did it in pictou nova scotia Mary McDonald, who has been the director at Eastern Edge Gallery, she was doing her master's in curatorial practice. And so for her uh, final project, she organized a community arts festival in Pictou, which is where she's from. And I went, and my project was... And, and you see, in this case, as the artist, I'm not actually making the work. I'm only just facilitating other people to do something about their own place because I'm just a visitor, right? And so I did an award ribbons project with a group in Pictou. And in this case, it was anywhere in Pictou County. So we, we traveled around in a few cars from place to place. And when we got to each place where someone wanted to give an award ribbon, um, we had a video made where each person is telling the group why they're giving an award ribbon to that place. So we went to a secret little beach. Um, we oh, we just went to some wonderful places. And places, because I was working with adults, at this point now there's more history coming out of things. When I was a child, this is what happened here, you know, you know that kind of thing. And so that's all online with a Google map. So the places that got awards are um, picked out on this Google map. And when you click on one of the spots, the little video plays. Mm. 
um, of the person telling why they're giving an award to that. We gave an award to a little old bridge that, um, it's amazing. It, it we, we just learned so much about Pictou County and the people in the project said they went to places in Pictou County they'd never been before, even though they lived there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. That other people took them to. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. And then the third time was, um, I was an artist in residence out in Kelowna for UBC Okanagan. And they had just acquired a new sort of conservation area and there was a house on it. So they invited me sort of to be the first artist in residence there. And what I did was um, an awards ribbons project for this conservation area. So, so nobody had never ever been there before. So the way I organized this was we, I sort of pre-planned a walk through the conservation area. We, as a group, we all went on this walk, and I told them ahead of time, I said, I want you on this walk to pick something that you want to give an award to. And we came back, made the award ribbons, and then we redid the walk, and at each spot where someone wanted to give an award ribbon, we stopped, and they told the group. And you know what? There were no two the same, and this was like 30 people. Everybody chose something different. And the ribbons are left there. And kind of, I kind of like, well, especially like in lawn, I was imagining people coming across these ribbons and saying, why, why is that there? And then the, like a ripple effect kind of, you know. There was one boy, I have to tell this story, there was this one boy I was very fond of, Kyle. He gave an award ribbon to this little, little larch tree. And, you know, I thought there could be a ripple effect from this. That large tree may get saved because someone might remember that's the tree that Kyle gave an award to. Hmm. Hmm. I want to, we're, we're coming closely to the end of our show and very quickly I wanted to change gears and talk about ice and snow. In a, in a, okay. <laughs> in a few minutes. Well, it's definitely heritage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so this is a more recent project that yes. you've been involved with. So tell us about, tell us about this. Well, I started being interested in the fact that there were so many terms and I had no idea how many in the Newfoundland dialect for ice and snow and winter weather. So in 2011, I started making an inventory of these terms and I found 80, eight zero. And so then I started photographing uh, examples to match the terms. And then that evolved into a documentary video poem, which is almost half an hour long, which has been getting, well, I've been getting a lot of mileage out of it. It was even just in June shown at Canada House in London, England, and right now it's over in Korea. And it's really, you know, taken off. <laughs> so uh, in that documentary video poem, I use almost all of these 80 terms for ice and snow, and I use them in a poem, and then it cuts to an image to match. And then my cousin Lloyd Brown, who's originally from Fogo Island, from Jobat's Arm, and has a beautiful pre-Confederation Newfoundland voice, he gives the definition of each word. Um, so the, the video proceeds like that, cuts back and forth between my voice and Lloyd's voice. And uh, Boulder Publications published a book which reproduces um, the whole video poem, word for word and image for image, it's called Brickle Nisha Nobly, which is kind of the opposite. I mean, usually a film is made from a book, but in this case, the book <laughs> was made from the film. Yeah. And so that's through Boulder Publications. That yes, are Boulder for. Publications. And uh, we are almost out of time, but I'm, I'm curious before we finish, do you have a, is there a favorite? Do you have a favorite word that you, for ice and snow? Oh, 
Wow. Well, this all started actually with an expression, Mother Carrie is plucking her chickens, which I heard around 1985. And it means there's these big, big clumps of snow falling down. And I was always fascinated by that term, but I never really kind of looked into this terminology further until, as I say, around uh, 2011 was when I started to decide, okay, somebody needs to do something about this. I guess it better be me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I I will encourage people to go and and find the book and and explore. And and the Dictionary of Newfoundland English is such a great uh, That was a big resource for me for this project. Uh, Marlene, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Dale. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ICH underscore NL. Thanks for listening.